This morning I thought I would start off with a couple of pieces of pastoral advice. Just things I've learned through the years I want to pass on to you. The first one is this. Uh, be careful when you pray for patience. Because the answer to that prayer often comes in some very uncomfortable circumstances, right? When you find yourself taking the shortest line in the grocery store that takes the longest amount of time, credit card doesn't work, they're wrapping plastic around it, brushing it, and, and all the time you're thinking, okay. Or like us this week, we had a, Terry and I had a, a really important meeting. We were both pretty worked up about it. We were coming separately, and uh, she gets stuck on Upland right there where the train track is. The train pulls forward, stops. Pulls backwards, stops. Pulls forward, stops. I don't know how long she ended up staying there, but you find yourselves in those kinds of situations when you pray for patience. So, just pastoral advice, be warned. <clears throat> the other one I actually learned just this week, and it's this. Be careful when you plan to preach on spiritual warfare. This week has been chaos. And really, if I were to be honest with you, it's Todd Naff's fault. And, and here's why that's the case. About six months ago, Todd and I were having lunch together, and within that conversation, he said, hey, would you ever, if you had an opportunity, be willing to teach on spiritual warfare? This is probably six months ago. And so we talked about it. I said, yeah, you know, if that chance comes up, that's probably a good, good idea. So I took notes, and as I was thinking about sermons, as we get ready to head into the new year, um, I leave uh, to go on my study leave this next week as I think about the year ahead, and I thought this Sunday would be a good Sunday to do that. And then as I got to preparing, I realized, oh, there's no way I can do this in one Sunday. It's just way too much information. It's way too uh, important. And there were just situations this week that perhaps in God's providence, he made me real aware of the fact that this is way too relevant to where we are in our world today. And so I have made the decision to not do it just to not today, but we're going to do a little short series on spiritual warfare. And today we're going to begin with the topic of knowing your enemy. Now, some of you hear that and you think, ah, we shouldn't be talking about the devil. <laughs> we don't want to give that guy any attention, right? But let me just remind you, there's a passage in Scripture that says that we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. And that's an important passage that only holds true if you know what the Bible says about the devil's schemes. So we're ignorant if we ignore them. But we're not ignorant if we look and see what the Scripture has to say because that's an important piece of the spiritual warfare battle that we face. Just look at our own military. When they want to have a strategic advantage over their enemy, what they'll do is they'll spend lots of time and resources and technology to get as much information about that enemy as they possibly can. Because we know all too well in the United States that a surprise attack is always the most deadly attack. And so we need to understand what we're up against. And the Bible, in, really, in a real sense, is it gives us intel on the enemy. It tells us who he is, tells us what his goals are, tells us who his targets are, are and the ignorance of these things is ultimately what breeds fear when you don't know what's coming that's when you get worried that's when you get anxious but truth can give you great assurance 
And so my prayer is as we walk through this together, that you will be strengthened, that you will uh, find great assurance in what the Scripture says about who our enemy is, but how much greater he who is within us than he who is in the world. And that's what we want to walk through together. So let's pray, and you pray for me (laughs) as I pray for you. God, we uh, do ask um, that as we engage in this very important topic, that you protect us from the schemes of the devil, who definitely intends to disrupt or distract from something that puts him in a position of weakness by allowing us to see the way in which he works and the weakness that he has in comparison to you. So may we be strengthened by that knowledge and may he be defeated by that knowledge. That's our prayer as we come to you this morning. Amen. Well, if you look at Scripture, you know that uh, the enemy is described in a lot of different ways. By name, whether that's the devil or Satan or Lucifer, uh, more often he's described by his character, right? He's described as the liar, uh, a deceiver, a thief, the evil one. Sometimes he's described by his domain, the god of this world, or the prince of the power of the air. One of the ways that we know that, that, that we can't rely on that's an unreliable is what he looks like. We don't know. In fact, the scripture tells us that Satan actually disguises himself as an angel of light. So if you did see him, you wouldn't know it. So we can't depend on appearance. Instead, we know that he is defined by his actions, which are consistent with his nature. Now, Jesus had a very important statement about the nature of our enemy in Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 8. We're going to look at a lot of different verses, I'll just tell you this morning. And I put them all up there so you can uh, look at them on the screen. But when we spend some time in one in particular, I'll point you to it and we'll look at it together. But hopefully uh, you'll be able to follow me. But in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says this about our enemy. He, being Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, listen, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is telling us that that Satan has a nature of deception. That his mouth speaks out of that which fills his heart and his heart is filled with lies. And his deception ultimately brings death. That's why he says he was a murderer from the beginning. Now think about that. How did did Satan murder? I want you to go back to the garden. I want you to think about that conversation that he had with Eve. When he looked at her and described this apple and says, if you eat of it, surely you will not die. That was a lie. It was a lie that stood in direct opposition to the truth that was spoken to Adam when God said to him, You can have anything in this garden that I created. I created it for you. So enjoy it. It's goodness. It's all there for you to experience the fullness of life that I created you for. But there's one tree. Do not eat from that tree or surely you will die. What Satan said stood in direct opposition to the truth that God had revealed. But in order to make it desirable, what does he do? He wraps that deception 
with a thin layer of truth. And he presents an apple to Eve. And he says, it says in Scripture that, that it was good for food. That's true. It was a delight to the eyes. That's true. It was desirable to make one wise. That's true. Every single one of those things are true. And inside is hidden the deception. Because those ultimately were distractions that fed the appetite of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Satan questioned God's goodness. And then offered Adam and Eve an alternative of something that he suggested was better. You see, he presented Adam and Eve with a choice. And in that choice, in order to believe Satan and his offer, they had to distrust God and his promise. And through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Satan possesses a deadly nature of deception, both then and now. Now, one of the things that I want to draw your attention to that that we need to understand, that unlike in the garden, as we see in that uh, particular event, uh, Satan rarely works alone. In fact, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and I want us to look at this one together. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. This is a passage that you're familiar with, but I want you to listen to what's being described here. As Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for our struggle, talking about this spiritual battle, he says that struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul is describing... A whole sphere of influence that is at work in the world to carry out the murderous deception of our enemy. Satan has deployed an entire army of demons who carry out his deception with the very same evil intent that he has. And I want you to look again and notice the characteristics in that description of these powers. He calls them rulers. Powers of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. You see, in God's providence, Satan and his evil army have been permitted to have a certain level of authority and power in this world. It is a spiritual force of evil that is constantly active. And hear me on this. One in which we, in and of ourselves, are powerless to destroy. This is not a pep rally. You're not going to hear me say, you just got to pull yourself out by the bootstraps and go hard against them. Because the truth of the matter is, if you go toe-to-toe with this enemy, you lose every single time. That's a promise. Instead, we need to understand that our enemy is powerful and effective. And here's ultimately what he intends to do. There's a lot that Scripture has to say. I'm going to divide it up into four primary categories. Our enemy intends to deceive, to divide, to discourage, and ultimately 
to destroy. His deception looks very much like it did in the garden. It's a repeated pattern all throughout history, and it is this. He tells you that what God has is something less than what is possible, that somehow he's withholding something from you. He questions the goodness of God. It suggests that, you know, God is just kind of this cosmic killjoy who just really, honestly, doesn't want you to have any fun. Okay? His commandments, they're burdensome. And ultimately, they really restrict you some, from some of the funnest things that this life has to offer. In fact, just look around you at all the people enjoying them, and if there's that many people having that good of a time, it really can't be that bad. Can it? He's making the same offer as he did in the garden, and that is God's goodness is not as good as you think it is. There's something better. He just doesn't want you to know about it. And then he makes that deception appetizing by appealing to our selfish desires. What he offers is always, always, always desirable. He he appeals to, to some appetite that we have. It could be an appetite for money could be an appetite for popularity, could be an appetite for power or approval. And, and that offer will always be a delight to the eyes. It'll be beautiful. I promise you, it will be attractive. He doesn't give you an ugly mess and say, you want some of this? He always makes it look like it's something that you can't live without. Because it'll promise to satisfy. It'll promise to, to make life more fulfilling. And in the short term, listen to me, all those things may be true. Money will make you more comfortable. That's true. Being in a certain cloud can make you more popular. That's true. A small little compromise could result in a momentary great pleasure. That's true. But hidden behind that that thin layer of truth is the deception, which ultimately is a trade that he's offering you. And what he's saying is, you can have this, but in order to accept my offer, you have to deny God's truth. The deception is a decision to believe a different truth, a false truth, one that has a sweet smell but a bitter taste. One that promises to satisfy, but always leaves you feeling a little bit empty, which is why you keep going back for more. And that deception will always lead to some sort of division. The most important division being the the deceitfulness of sin that separates us from our relationship with God. The Bible makes it clear, you cannot have two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. That master is the one that you choose to obey. And in trusting one, it requires of you to deny the other. They cannot coexist. That's why 1 John 1.6 says, if you say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. What it's saying is the two cannot coexist. You can say what you want to say, but your actions, how you live your life, will either validate or betray your words. Choosing to sin separates you from fellowship with God. It brings division in that relationship, but also in our relationships with one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the importance of, of relationships and fellowships within the body of Christ. And then in verse 26, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he says something really simple, interesting. Listen to what he says. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Interesting statement. An opportunity for what? Opportunity to divide the relationship. When that anger, when harbored, turns to bitterness. That bitterness, when harbored, turns to unforgiveness. That unforgiveness, when harbored, ultimately hardens the heart to such a degree that the only way out is a division. You see, every marriage that ends in divorce, every church that splits, every family or friendship that grows cold is a victory for Satan because he seeks to divide. And you and I both know he's winning a lot of those battles. Which as we look at that landscape, it can be discouraging. Which is exactly what he wants to do. The enemy hopes to discourage you. This is a strange verse, but just trust me, go with me. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Let me speak to this issue. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. It's actually talking about the relationships between a father and his children. I like the way the ESV says it. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I just want you to ask yourself, how does provoking cause discouragement? Well, in this context, it's speaking of a father who's belittling his child for not measuring up, for making mistakes. So instead of training them to do the right thing, they're condemning them for having done the, the wrong thing. And this is a repeated pattern that, that happens over and over again to the child finally comes to the understandable conclusion that he'll never measure up. Never measure up. He'll never be good enough. Graham and Carrie and Kate and I had a chance to see this um, with our own eyes recently. Last month, we went on a hunting trip together. And uh, we were there uh, at a ranch where we met a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph was a big cowboy, a man's man. And we had had our hunt. We'd stopped for lunch, and Joseph asked if he could speak to uh, uh, Carrie and, and I and Kate and, and Graham. And uh, so we said, yeah, sure, we'd love to hear what you have to say. So Joseph kind of pulled us together, and he looked at Graham and, and Kate, and he said, guys, he said, I just want to just encourage you. Uh, speak with your, with your dad. Be, find safety in that relationship. I want to encourage you to pursue him and talk about things that are, that are going on in your life. Because your dad is there to help you and encourage you. And then he looked at Carrie and I and he said, let me encourage you guys. 
When your son says he wants to talk, talk, you drop whatever you're doing and you make time for that. Never let it go by. Always accept that invitation. And then he goes on to give a little testimony about his life. He says, I grew up in a military home. And he says, what that meant for me is when I did something wrong, I knew about it. And there were severe consequences to that decision. But he said, when I did something right, never heard anything. And then this big, strong cowboy got tears in his eyes. And he said, to this day, I still don't know if my dad's proud of me. That's exactly what our enemy wants to do to you. He wants to discourage you to the point that you think the same about your heavenly father. That you've made some kind of mistake of a such magnitude that there's no possible way that God would accept someone like you. That you don't measure up and therefore he's not interested. You'll walk with that limp for the rest of your life and so just live with it. What's ironic about this is that Satan will often belittle you for the things he convinced you to do in the first place. But that's how he works. He seeks to deceive, to divide, to discourage, and then ultimately to destroy. If you want to, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Another familiar passage says this. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That word devour literally means to destroy or to ruin completely. And that destruction can take a lot of forms. It can come in the form of addictions. I'm reading a book right now called Fearless about a, a man by the name of Adam Brown who was a part of SEAL Team 6. It's a man's man kind of book. I really love reading it. But what was interesting is the story of this guy when he was a young man, high school age. And he was crazy. I mean, he would go against people in football that were twice his size until they just punished him to no end. And he still didn't win, but he still didn't quit. And it was just kind of his persona. They called him psycho in high school because he just didn't know when to stop. But he was also a man of conviction. It tells a story of whenever he was 15 or 16 years old, he asked his parents if he could go to the lake with some friends who were going to go skiing and do some stuff. Well, they'd never done anything like that. Mom was real reluctant to let him go do something uh, with his friends. And, and, uh, but she said, all right, I'll, I'll let you go. But you've got to promise me you will, will, you'll wear a life jacket. That when y'all are swimming or doing whatever, you will always have a life jacket on. He said, all right, Mom, I'll do that. Well, you and I both know that when they get to the lake and mom's not around, do you think he's going to wear that life jacket? Yes, he did. He didn't take it off. And they said, man, your mom's not here. Take it off. You don't need that thing. Nobody else is wearing one. He goes, I know, but I made a promise. He gave another story of whenever he was spending, some night with some, uh, spending the night with some friends, and they all snuck out that night to go to a party down the street, and he stayed at home. Well, later they asked him, well, why didn't you go with us? And he said, look, I made my mom a promise that I wouldn't leave unless I had permission. And we didn't have permission, so I didn't go. That was kind of his character. But then he got involved with a, a young lady early after high school who was a bad influence on him. And she convinced him to 
just a small little compromise to try this drug. And please hear me tell you this. This is not an exaggeration. This is an absolutely true story. He took one hit of that drug, immediately addicted. He woke up the next morning and said, it was calling my name. I could not think of living life without it. And he spiraled out of control until he came this close to dying. In prison, felonies. Thankfully, there is a redemptive part to the story. But what I want you to hear me say is that the enemy wants to destroy you. And sometimes it can be as simple as one small compromise that will send you spiraling out of control. But it didn't always have to be something bad. <laughs> he can give you, uh, 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 destroy your family with the pursuit of wealth. You know, got to have that fill in the blank. Where you pursue something that you think is going to be fulfilling when ultimately it robs you. So whether it's a good thing or a vile thing, the strategy is the same. To ruin the relationship that you were created to have with your Savior and with one another. He will deceive, he will divide, he will discourage, and ultimately he will destroy the abundant life you were created to enjoy. And the other thing that's important when we talk through this together is that, that he's not discriminating in his targets. He'll attack believers and unbelievers alike. In fact, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving then, to literally keep them in the dark. He'll use all kinds of techniques, the things that we've talked about already, things that look good, things that feel good, things that that promise to to satisfy, to distract unbelievers from seeing the light of Christ, keep people preoccupied, to prevent them from having any concern about the gospel because you won't look for a Savior if Satan convinces you you don't need one. He'll tell you, look, This religion thing, this church thing that everybody's doing, it's just a crutch. It's for people who are weak, right? You're doing just fine. Those small compromises, everybody does them. It's not that big of a deal. He'll convince you that happiness is a whole lot better than any pursuit of holiness. Notice again in that passage that it doesn't say that Satan will blind the eyes of unbelievers. What does it say? You blind the minds of the unbelievers. You see, God does not hide his truth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And that became none more visible than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, There was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
verse 4 said that it blinded their minds so that they might not see the light of the gospel. The, the see means to understand, to be made evident. The point here is that he blinds them from believing that Jesus is something that they need. Convinces them to believe a different truth than the one that God has revealed. Clearly seen, none more perfectly than in Jesus Christ. And you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, need to be on alert because we are just as much at risk as well. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. The scripture tells us that he will mislead those, even the elect. The elect are the chosen, the ones that believe in who Christ is. Those that have trusted Christ but become enamored with signs and wonders. Uh, things that are, are displays of power. Because the fact of the matter is, we're, we're inclined towards the spectacular. If you don't believe that's true, consider this an invitation. This coming summer, July 4th, bring your lawn chair, come to my house. Sit in my front yard, and you're going to see thousands and thousands of dollars literally go up in the air oh, for hours. Actually, it starts several days before the 4th of July. It will go on several days after July because we're enamored with the spectacular. And this is how religious entertainment can become a false god. We prefer signs and wonders over washing people's feet. We want, as one famous American preacher has said, our best life now. I'm here to tell you, if this is the best life, I want out. If this, in this earth, is everything that God has planned, I'm out. This is not the best life now. There is goodness here, but doesn't even compare to what's in store on the other side of heaven. In fact, 1 John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, this is what it says about the best life now. It says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever, and that's where the best life begins. Satan can't take away your salvation, but please don't be deceived. He can rob you of the riches of God's grace. 
There are believers in the church. There are believers within this body who are in bondage to the lies of the enemy. Living lives completely overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and discouragement. I think Jesus may have some of this in mind when he's speaking with his disciples and he's explaining to them the parable that he told about the parable of the soils. And he says, these are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Deception can make people immune to the transforming power of God's truth, being robbed by believing lies. Now, those are true statements. Those are the facts. That's the intel that we have on our enemy, and I hope you're slightly overwhelmed because you need to understand the significance of what we face and our inability to have any possible chance of overcoming it on our own. You go toe-to-toe with this enemy, you lose every single time. So turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And I want us to take one look at uh, some good news in this regard. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to what Paul writes in this letter. He says in verse 13, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And in that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. That word disarmed literally means to strip. And I don't know if you saw it in that last uh, verse. It really is kind of painting a picture of the cross where Jesus was stripped, put on display, ridiculed in public. And he's saying what the enemy considered on that day to be his greatest victory was his ultimate defeat. Because Christ's death removes the grounds of the enemy's accusations. That certificate of debt that you rightly deserve was nailed to the cross. And so that's why in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets you free from the law of sin and death. Colossians earlier tells us that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's what you need to understand about what took place on the cross. Satan was stripped of his power to enslave you against your will. Did you hear that? When it says disarmed, it's saying that the enemy has no ability to enslave you against your will. Sin is no longer your master. But hear this too. He still retains the power 
to deceive you into believing things that are not true. He still has the power to deceive you into believing things that are not true. That's why Jesus said to those who believed him these words, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And here it is. The truth will set you free. Knowing God's truth prevents you from being enslaved to the lies of our enemy. Please don't forget that. If you walk away with anything this morning, please walk away with that. Knowing God's truth prevents you, it protects you from being enslaved to the lies of the enemy. And we're going to unpack that in much more detail in the next Sunday or two, but it's important to understand that here. Now, I just want to take a minute to express my perspective of why I believe that what we're talking about this morning is of such great importance and relevance. I'm going to put this in the category of my perspective, and so you can take it or leave it, but I want you to know it's a a, a sincere conviction that I have. I do believe that we are living in a time where it will be increasingly unacceptable to align your life to the truths found in God's Word. I believe it will be true in my lifetime, but I most certainly believe it's going to be true in the next generation's lifetime. I do believe that we live in a post-Christian era. And what that essentially means is that the main cultural institutions that are the, the primary influence in our society will no longer support or encourage Christian values. If you really want to follow Christ, then it's likely that you're going to be ridiculed for doing so. It will no longer be cool to be a Christian. But the moral decline of our culture should not be our greatest concern. In fact, it shouldn't surprise us at all. We just looked at a lot of what Scripture has to say about the world in which we live in. This is not intended to be paradise. A far greater concern than the compromise in the world is the growing reality of apathy in the church. That's what should be of our greatest concern. So I just want you to ask yourself, why are you here this morning? Why does this matter? I mean, are you here because you feel like you have to? Because your parents told you to? Is this just something you do every Sunday, so what else would you do? Why are you here? I think there's a time coming when you're here because you've got to be here. This is your family. This is the place where you find refuge. These are the folks that remind you of what is true in the midst of the world that is speaking a whole lot of lies. There's a day now where your convictions really have to be things that you are convinced are true. You know that cute little parable about the man who builds his house on the rock and the man who builds his house on the sand? And we kind of relegated that to children's church. But let me remind you, when Jesus told that parable, he wasn't speaking to kids. He was speaking to adults. And that's an important truth that we better really grab a hold of. Because there's a time coming that if you and your life and your family is not built on the solid foundation of God's truth, you will be swept away. Because the current of this culture is growing way too strong. Our enemy is on the offensive. 
make no mistake, he's out to deceive, to divide, to discourage, and to destroy. You cannot survive unless you abide in the truth of God's word. Ignorance and apathy will make you a slave to the enemy's lies. Now, when I tell you this, I want you to know that this is not intended to be a, a discouragement. In fact, you may think I'm a little morbid with this. There's a level of excitement when I think about what's in store. Because some of the greatest spiritual revival that this world has ever known is fallen on the heels of some of the worst persecution the church has ever seen. And I'm wondering if maybe this is what it's going to take for the church to wake up and be ultimately who God designed us to be. And I'm convinced that when we find ourselves in those hard places, that's where we really see the power of God's truth come alive in our life. But I've got to encourage you. I've got to warn you. I've got to urge you to don't wait until that day gets here. But start now. And be here because you need to. And don't just stop here. Because this is not enough. You've got to live in relationships with one another to remind each other of what is good and right and true. Because you live in a world that is full of lies that is telling you something totally different. And the enemy is so good and creative, he's found a way to interact with us every waking hour of our day. There's not a moment that exists that he can't infiltrate your life in some way. And so, be here because you need it. You're encouraged by it. You're strengthened by it. And then carry it on through the week so that you are encouraging each other towards love and good deeds even more as the day draws near. Doesn't that make sense? Because as the day draws near, that's when it gets more and more difficult when the pressure of this world wants to push you away from what you know to be true. So drive a stake in the ground. And then we'll talk next week about how to stand firm in the midst of those struggles that we all face. Let's pray together. Father, I just ask that um, the truth of your word would reveal the schemes of the de devil, the enemy that is out to de de deceive us, to divide us, to discourage us, and ultimately to destroy us by separating us from that fellowship that we have in you and the unity that we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. May we not be ignorant of those schemes, but in knowing them, be prepared to stand against them. And not because we have some strength in and of ourselves because we lose when that's the case, but may we stand behind the cross. May we stand behind the one who has disarmed those authorities, who has canceled the certificate of debt, who has transferred us from the kingdom, uh, the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May we live being built on the truth of your word, encouraging each other even more as the day draws near. Father, this is our prayer, and we come to you humbly. It's in the name of our Savior, our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a good day.